Mi gente, your boy Sky joined here today with Josh Fisher. Tell us who you are and what it is that you do. Yeah, my name is Josh Fisher. I'm a scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I look at Earth. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that NASA looks back at Earth. You know, uh -huh. they know us as looking at Mars and black holes and things like that. But we actually have more satellites orbiting around this planet than any other planet. And looking back. Okay, but explain that because when you think NASA, NASA stands for National Aer uh, Aeronautics and Space Association. Close. Good enough. You had space in there. <laughs> administration. An an administration. Okay, administration. So, so my, so my thing is, and you, you guys still look back at Earth. Why? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we look at all the planets. Earth is. Uh, Earth is another planet. Uh -huh. We Earth scientists at NASA like to say it's the best planet because it has 100% of the taxpayers on it. Um, you know, so, <laughs> uh, but we're trying to understand uh, all the planets, including Earth, um, and it's within our mandate at NASA to look at Earth. Uh, and so in some ways it's actually you know, easier to look at Earth because you, you don't have to send your satellites as far out uh -huh. as to Mars or whatever. Um, in other ways, it's more complicated because Earth is much more complicated than a lot of other planets. Because know? these other planets uninhabited. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at Mars, you know, we're interested in Mars, but it's mostly rock, right? You know, and so whereas here we've got this breathing biosphere of trees and plants and ocean, atmosphere swirling around, all these gases, humans doing all sorts of different things. And so when we try to understand how, our, how Earth functions, it's really complicated. So you're an eco-scientist, as an eco-scientist, that, that's really what? What, 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 is, what is it truly, what are you looking at exactly? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I mean, I'm a scientist, right? And uh, I look at ecosystems, plants, soils, water, uh, agriculture. And I got into it because I was interested in science and I couldn't pick a science. I liked biology, I liked chemistry, I liked physics. And I looked for a science that allowed me to combine different sciences together. Um, and you could do that in like a pre-med, um, or you can do that in environmental sciences. I thought, oh, you know, environmental science would be a good way to connect all these sciences together, and I get a chance to get outside mm -hmm. now and then. And then, uh, as I was going through my schooling, you know, climate change blew up in our face, and you really need this uh, intersection of different sciences to tackle such a complicated and interconnecting problem such as climate change. So um, in, in graduate school, in my PhD, I started playing with satellites, uh -huh. uh, NASA satellites, mostly because they're cool toys in the sky. Um, but uh, then, you know, I was able to look at big systems of the Earth and how it moved around. And I'm from Los Angeles originally. I spent some time in Alaska. And so growing up in L.A., we have a lot of droughts, a lot of, you know, water issues. And so I was interested in looking at water and water as a cycle, as, as it moved through, like, energy through a system. Uh, and be able to track that from space. And so I was doing that in my PhD uh -huh. and was able to come up with ways to be able to do that. Um, and then at the, about the same time, climate change you know, exploded onto the scene and I was looking at big cycling of Earth processes uh, using the latest in technology at a time when we really needed to study what was happening to our Earth because of the changing climate. So you mentioned water. Are we in trouble water-wise? Like, will we run out of water? Does it look that way? That's a great question. Um, I mean, all your questions are great, but, uh, you know, uh, not to kiss up to the interviewer. Um, and, uh, you know, water is important for your other show, The Tipsy Bartender, right? Because you don't have water, you don't have that show, right? You just yeah. got a bunch of sugar in there. You just got a bunch of sugar, you know. Um, no, so uh, water, 
Water is the fundamental, I, I would say, most important aspect of climate change. You know, we hear a lot about polar bears or, you know, this and that. But water fundamentally is what's changing the most because of climate change. We're trapping more energy in the Earth's system because of our greenhouse gases, CO2 and uh -huh. other things. And the energy accelerates the water cycle, makes it more energetic, makes it hyper. It's like giving a kid candy, you know, on Halloween. They're just bouncing off the walls, knocking stuff over, crying, laughing. And that's what we're doing to the Earth's system. We're driving these super storms more frequently. They're bigger. These droughts get more, you know, bigger. And so uh, our water cycle, which we as humans would per to be prefer to be just kind of relatively chilled out, right? You know, just predictable. Uh, year to year is now becoming much more unpredictable, much more variable, and that's a big problem. You want it's kind of like Goldilocks. Uh, you you know you don't want it too hot, you don't want it too cold, you want it just right. Uh, you want just you know you want a good amount of water. You have too little water, you're in a drought. You have too much water, you're in a flood. And so you want just that perfect amount of water, and that requires a very stable climate. And we we don't have that, so our water supply is somewhat in jeopardy. Would you say? Absolutely. So if you look at just us in California, a few years ago, we we almost ran out of water. We uh -huh. had one year of surface water left. One, one year? Yeah. So, um, you know, flash to the cool slides that you guys will edit in. Uh, <laughs> uh, they'll, they'll, I'll show you, the, you know, there's these, you can see our reservoirs, you know, in 2013, all filled up in 2014, completely decimated. Uh -huh. And so not only were we losing water, and this is happening all over the world, um, where you've got, uh, like a, in Denmark, you've got all these fields in agriculture that was really happy, and the next year just completely decimated because they ran out of water. So in California, where you know where where we're living, uh, we get most of our water from the snowpack. Uh, that's our reservoir because it doesn't rain in the summer here, and so we that snow melts and we use that water for when we're growing our food the most in the summer, right when it's uh -huh. nice and sunny and warm, and that snow's going away because it's warming. And we're overpumping our groundwater, so we don't have that. Um, and so, yeah, was, uh, our water issues are basically that that tipping point for a lot of critical regions. In a place like California, we are pretty rich, right? We can um, buy, you know, our food from elsewhere. We can buy water. We can support our farmers when they can't grow. In other places of the world, they can't. Yeah. And so that becomes a big tipping point in terms of geopolitical. Uh, migrations and conflicts that start with a climate spark. Did Did you watch the movie The Big Short? You know, you know what I'm talking about. The, it, it covered the Florida housing crisis. Yeah. Why Why I brought that up is because the guy who was the one that kind of predicted the whole housing collapse. You know, one the, the one of the few guys who walked away with a bunch of money from that. He um, <coughs> my my understanding is well after the show he only invests in in water related stuff now because he understands that water is going to be the next gold. Yeah. Did you see that happening? Yeah, absolutely. Like oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, um, again, a lot of my examples, sorry for your international viewers, are, are <laughs> like California bias. Um, but, y you know, California, uh, water in California is a big deal, right? You know, especially for agriculture. You need that water. And so uh, not only are producers, agricultural producers, worried about growing their crops, they're worried about their water. And they buy water as much as they buy seeds and fertilizers and things like that. And they'll buy water and store water in water banks, like going to the bank, right? Uh -huh. But there's these areas where you can buy water, move water, deposit it in, like, the ground in these, like, aquifers that hold the water, and then they can, like, suck it back out or uh, sell it. And so water trading and water buying and selling is is 
is huge. Really? How the hell did I get into this? I, I, I didn't even, I didn't know. How would I even get into that? Is this, these, these are, sto- this is publicly traded stocks? Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a stock market expert. Otherwise, you know, I'd be, I'd be rich and not talking to you, man. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing it. So, 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 okay, sea levels rising, but we now have desalinization mm, plants, right? Sure, yeah. Do you know, so does that kind of balance this out? As the water begins to disappear, we just process more seawater? Can we just desal our way out of it? Desal is a really nice option for getting some fresh water out of salt water, but how do you get that salt out of the water? It's not easy. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of energy. Oh, really? That salt is bind, you know, bound to the water really well. So you have to spend an enormous amount of energy, which costs money or, you know, you pollutes the environment if it's coal or oil or, you know, you got to figure out where to get your solar or your, or your wind from. But it takes a lot of energy to get that salt out of the water. And so the desal that we see can support, you know, me filling up this cup of water or us in, in an urban city environment. But most of the water is not used by urban environments. Again, another California example. Mm-hmm. 80% of the water used in, in California is used by agriculture, uh-huh. not by cities, not by golf courses and people's lawns and toilets and, and, and flows. And yes, we have to do our part everywhere to think about wasting our, our resources. But ultimately, you know, for us to drink this water is one thing, but you need to now have your plants that are growing your lettuce or your, your orchards or whatever, taking that water every day and a lot of it fields beyond the size of cities, right? Uh-huh. So it's a whole nother order of magnitude in terms of the water that's used to grow food versus what we're consuming uh, here. So in watching one of your speeches, I didn't notice. I, mean, I don't know if I learned this and missed the, cl- uh, you know, was supposed to notice, but plant, you, you showed that like plants actually produce water. Am I correct with that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I they cycle water. They cycle water. They, so they, they, they don't produce water, but they use the water from rain, right? Or uh-huh. whatever's in the soil. And they, they use it just like us, you know. Life requires water, right? That's our big thing. So, but, but, but in your example that I saw, like, the leaves look as if they were putting water out. Right, but that came from the soil. So it's a straw. There's straws. Okay. So they'll suck it up with their roots, you know, and then spit it out through the leaves back to the sky. Back to the sky, John. Um, <laughs> and so... Um, you know, so they, they're not, they're not producing it, but they're using it. And so they need it as much as we do. And so what we do from NASA and with this mission called EcoStress that I, am the science lead for, we just uh-huh. launched it to the International Space Station in 2018. We're looking at how much water plants are using and needing and how stressed out they are if they're not getting that water. And that's exactly critical, um, because some plants use more water than others. They're more efficient with their uh-huh. water. Um, you know, and so if there's a drought, guess who's going to die first? The less efficient plants. Uh-huh. And so it's kind of like if you and I were to run a race, right? You know, you might need more water than I or might, might need more water than you. And as we start to run out of water close in to the end of the race, someone's going to start to falter in that uh-huh. race. And the race is in life here uh, for, for the ecosystems of the planet. You just mentioned like eco-stress. Mm. You know, these plants are stressed out. Mm. Do you, do you feel like plants are intelligent? Because a lot of people, I know they, they talk about, about your fungi being intelligent. Yeah. What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you think Well, you that? seem pretty intelligent. N- not really, You though. seem like a fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. You're a fun guy. Um, there it's we a go. science joke. There we go. Science joke, people. Science. I'll keep my day job. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. There we go. Uh, yeah. So, 
I mean, so we like to think, we like to anthropomorphize uh, plants and, you know, and animals and cups. Oh, yeah, my cup talking. So um, uh, ultimately, it, it's a good way to, you know, I say, oh, plants are feeling stressed. You know, they're uh -huh. feeling stressed. But they've evolved, right? They've evolved uh, through adaptation, survival of the fittest. And there's uh, things that work that makes it look like they're making decisions. So one interesting aspect is that uh, big trees will support their younger trees or even, um, uh, even competing species that are around them. And they'll have these deep roots. And they'll, while everyone's dry, running out of water at the surface, they might tap some deep groundwater way below. They'll bring that water up, and they won't actually use it. Then they'll just spit it out to the surface through their shallow roots, allowing their seedlings to, uh, to use it and survive, and maybe some of their competing species. So then we say, well, are they nurturing their young? You know, Or it could just be that that's how they, they survive, because trees that didn't do that didn't survive. And so they had a, a mutation and adaptation along the evolutionary way that just did that, and then they survived when the other species didn't. What do you think? Do you think they nurtured their young? No. Okay. But, <laughs> okay. but I still use that phrasing because it gets people like emotionally connected. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's good to have that too. But you know, we have to be real sometimes with the science. Um, but there are also interesting things with the fungi too, right? Uh -huh. The fungi are, you know, the communication. That's another one, right? Communication are plants signaling to their neighboring trees that there's a locust infestation or some sort of beetle infestation and yes they do but it's not like they're like oh shit i gotta text my buddies right <laughs> you know they're like they evolved to do this and the trees that sent out these signals and the trees that were sensitive to the signals survived when the other species didn't so there's these communication how would they react though i mean give me give me an example like so there's mm. a there's, there's some kind of beetle infestation yeah so what kind of signal is sent? Yeah, so it's chemical. So they'll like emit these chemicals into the air, um, and then you know if, if you're a leaf on a on a tree on another tree, and you get this chemical, you'll react, and then then you can um, then you can put on defensive compounds. You can suddenly increase like the the waxiness of your leaves, or put on these. You can actually, as a tree, emit other chemicals that the beetles don't like, or will kill the benefit beetles and so you know i guess the question is why aren't trees out doing this all the time right because it takes resources right you know it takes they have to build this that's that's the sugars that they create from photosynthesis can be used for it's like money uh -huh. how do you spend your money and trees have to decide how to spend their their sugar money do they send it on building new roots getting taller new leaves seeds fruits defensive compounds uh -huh. and so if they spent it on defensive compounds they might not grow, right? Because uh -huh. they're not spending on growth, or they might not grow on roots to get more water. So it's these optimality decisions. So you need a good accountant in there. <coughs> you need a good accountant. It's a total economy, <laughs> and that's why you have people who do well with their economics, you know, and people who don't. And it's kind of a conservative liberal principle too. Why do we have conservative and liberal people? It's the same as why do we have? Con it's the same in plants. There are conservative plants and there are liberal plants, and it usually is because of. Uh, evolutionary history, their, mm. their life history. Uh, plants that are used to droughts know that they get over it really quick and they're like, all right, you know, let's just keep using water. We know the rain will come again. Other plants will be like, no, you know, we'll be more conservative because, you know, the, the droughts are less frequent or more frequent. And so there's these uh, life histories that that's why not all plants function the same way. That's why not all humans function the same way. 
okay, so right now you have all these movements where guys are going out there and planting trees. We have a YouTuber, Mr. Beast. I, I think he's planted something like 20 million trees with the help of Elon Musk. Well, is that something that really helps the climate, or that's too little, too late? Uh, both, right? So, uh, we, you know, plants are our number one CO2 drawdown mechanism. It's our, our vacuum cleaner. The, mm -hmm. It's our mop of the sky to suck out the CO2. And so we've got to have those trees and those plants around. But the CO2 that we're sending up isn't like, you know, we chop down a tree and then we plant a tree and bring it down. It's not one for one. Uh, we aren't burning trees anymore. We are burning uh, the accumulation of thousands of trees and, you know, dead animals that have grown over thousands of years, compressed into a tiny ball of coal and oil that we burn like that, right? So to plant a tree in that place is one of the thousands of trees in place. It's not a one for one. And so it, it's not going to solve that, you know, we can't, it's not going to take out all the CO2, but it is one mechanism and one of the primary mechanisms to do it. Okay. Because I see, I, I see um, in terms of getting CO2 out of the air, they're now, I don't know what they're called, but I see these big machines big out in the middle, right? and they, they kind of suck it out and yeah. pump it into the ground. Yeah, yeah. Does that actually work, though? <laughs> I mean, so there's a lot of... Um, what we call geoengineering solutions. Yeah. Can we just continue, you know, life is normal and just like suck that CO2 out of the sky and, you know, put it somewhere where it doesn't come out again, you know? So there's a lot of questions and issues around that. Can we create these vacuums that are big enough? And the, the vacuums require energy. So are we burning coal to suck out the coal? Like, yeah. you know, like, you know it's kind of like running, chasing our own tail yeah. in some ways. Uh, so, and also can, you know, this is the earth and like, how big are these machines? They're like, you know, you the one the one I saw, I saw I saw it on some documentary, yeah. and it was freaking huge, like as big as a building. Yeah, it was a like, huge building, right? Yeah. A huge building or a warehouse, but that's still small relative to the Earth, right? Uh -huh. And so, um, you know, if we think about even just where we live on land, everything you see that just seems your entire world, that's only a small fraction of the Earth. Most of the Earth is ocean, right? Right. So it's it's kind of hard for humans to like wrap their head around this, the, the scales between, ah, let's build this massive vacuum or this massive solar array or whatever it is. and But then the atmosphere is like, just looks down and laughs at you and says, you know, don't even touch that. It wastes so, time. yeah. Um, so that's one of the issues, or a couple of the issues. Another issue is if you are able to suck it down, where do you put it? Yeah. Like, where do you put it where it doesn't just come back up again? Because if you put it in the ground, it eventually comes out. It might right? just come back out again. Right. Exactly. So... The oil and in, in, in coal that we're getting is way deep down there in uh -huh. these aquifers, right? Otherwise, you know, it would have come out yeah. or whatever. So, um, you know, it's there's not a lot of places to put it. There's other ideas for geoengineering, like. By the way, br break down what geoengineering is for the audience. Who've yeah, sorry. Term. Yeah, it, <clears throat> I mean, I throw the term out there just as a as a term. I'm to, familiar with it, but I just sure, learned yeah. recently what that is. It's basically a describe uh, building stuff to like um, to to solve the climate crisis. It's, that's basically it. Can we build our way out of it? Can, can we, we build our way out of it? Can we build a robot that, like, just like a Roomba <laughs> of the sky that just, like, <laughs> and doesn't get, like, stuck on, you know, like, some... Is know. that possible, though? Because I've heard some theories of guys throwing some kind of reflective particles into mm -hmm. the atmosphere yeah. to ref reflect the, the, the sun's lights back so that the Earth doesn't heat up. Right. So lots of interesting ideas, you know, things like that. Space mirrors, painting yeah. the roof white. Um, you know, there's, there's an idea of um, 
putting iron, uh, like iron clippings, on the ocean. And it allows uh, algae and plankton to kind of grow. And they suck down the CO2, and then they die and sink to the bottom of the ocean. So now you've got a large area drawing CO2, and you don't have to deal with the storage issue because they just sink to the bottom of the deep, oh. deep, deep ocean. Um, so that's an inter interesting idea. But, but then won't something eat that? And then you end up eating iron? Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's the question. Like, what about all that iron that you've just put out there? Is it going to, like, disrupt the fisheries? Are you yeah, going to, like, uh -huh. you're going to eat it? Like, you know, is it going to, somewhere we're going to become Iron Man? Like, you know, yeah, you got some good guns there, Sky, but, like, you know, or is it just going to go to your brain instead and, like, knock you out? Yeah. Right? You'd rather go to the biceps. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, big questions. And, and it's, it's important to have people thinking about these uh -huh. ideas. Anyone can think of an idea, but then you have to think about scale and like ramifications. Okay, have, have any of the ge geoengineering suggestions so far seem plausible to you? Like something that you, you heard and you go, wow, this shit could actually work. No. <laughs> okay, we uh, have a lot to look forward to. So, I mean, we should definitely keep pursuing them. We should definitely keep pursuing them. The 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 vacuums that suck CO two out, you know. Again, but these issues of like where do you store it and the scale and, th and things like that, iron fertilization uh, of the ocean, um, you know, maybe test it out on small scale, <laughs> see what happens. Uh, we have to do something. We have to continue exploring, but we have to understand the ramifications of them. But at w but you see but you can see in the future where someday we will be able to control the weather. So that's exact. That's another important aspect about this. Not you know I've already laid out all these issues, but who gets to control this, right? Who gets to control the geoengineering of our Earth's climate? Is it America? Is it China? Is it uh -huh. the UN? Who is it? And who and that power would be enormous, uh -huh. right? And what happens if you turn it off? What happens, you could go into termination shock. It's like, you know, uh, being dependent on, you know, a medicine and, like, you know, what happens if the political situation switches and, like, uh. you just turn it off or there's an economic crisis. And so there's huge implications in terms of who gets to control it and the impact on it. Um, and, you know, and there's these, ideas, you, you mentioned, like, aerosols or space mirrors or things like that and reflecting sunlight. But what happens if you are cutting off the needed sunlight for farmers in, you know, Africa or something uh -huh. like that, or you've disrupted the monsoons in India. So, um, you know, these, you have, you know, there's, these there's a balance and we'd be disturbing that. And you just have to think about doing one thing has this cause and effect and you have to think all the way down the line. Okay. So how the hell do we solve the cl climate crisis then in your opinion? Like, what do we do? Yeah. So uh, ultimately we have to reduce the amount of you know, the, the stuff that's causing it, which is the CO2 mm -hmm. in the atmosphere. So we <clears> talked about sucking it out, but what about putting it in, right? So you got to stop putting it in. We got we to gotta stop burning, you know, fossil fuels and uh, if, if we want to reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So that's step one. Um, and it's not just CO2. There's methane uh, from, from cows, cows. Yeah, from cows, wet, uh, rice paddies, uh, landfills, um, you know, fracking, things like that. There's even there's uh, nitrogen gases from fertilizers that are even more potent than uh, CO2. It's a lot of greenhouse gases, but um, so we have to make sure we're emitting less of those greenhouse mm -hmm. gases, and at the same time, uh, thinking about these solutions to draw it out. If we stopped emitting all greenhouse gases, it would eventually restabilize, right? It would take some time, but the oceans would absorb, the plants would absorb, it would take some time, uh, but eventually we'd be okay. So. Uh, you know, we, but we have to stop doing that if we want the climate to stabilize. But do you think 
as a whole, I know a lot of people out there still don't believe in climate change. Mm -hmm. Oh no! Firstly, when you encounter someone who doesn't believe in climate change, mm -hmm. an an educated person, like a politician, mm -hmm. because my my view is when I hear politicians who don't believe in climate change, like sometimes you can look at them and you know, wait a minute, this dude been to the best school out there, graduated the top of his class. He's solely spitting bullshit for his lobbyist, you know, just saying that. Yeah. I mean, but, but how do you feel when you encounter a climate denier? Well, it depends where they're coming from, right? If it's, um, if it depends how, you know, open-minded they are for, you know, talking about it. Um, you know, politicians are one thing, but um, oftentimes there's the politician and the person, and they're different. It's kind of like the, the actor, you know, who plays a part on a screen, and they do it really well, and they're successful. And then at home, they're you know just chilled out and laid mm -hmm. back or whatever. Politicians are very similar. They have a role to play in their jobs, and then you know they might be different as people. So um, it depends. You know, you have to you have to figure out where people are coming from. And uh, I think it doesn't. It's not a political uh, issue. It shouldn't be politicized. Everyone cares about their home, about each other, about their families, about their communities. And so I think if you can reach common values and, and figure out how it relates back to what's happening around the world, you can draw some common dialogue. Um, you know, there's, there's different values for different people. Um, you know, sometimes we think of uh, conservative audiences as, as being very interested in family and uh, technology and mm -hmm. jobs <coughs> and terrorism and, uh, you know, and those aspects. And those are all connected to the environment and climate. And so if you can speak to... Um, values uh, that uh, appeal to certain audiences and relate it back, then you can have a conversation. Okay, so there, there's a, there's a, um, you know, there's there's a statistic that everyone quotes that 97 percent of scientists believe climate change is real. Have you ever run into any of the three percent that don't? Yeah, yeah, they're all idiots. Um, <laughs> <coughs> I mean, th th that's a that's a scientific uh, jargon. L let me explain what that means to you. Um, yeah. Like, and I'll just, like, say that. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, you, we've reassessed their papers, and they, like, totally screwed it up. And, like, so it's actually now, like, 100%. So it's not, and it's not, like, a belief. It's, you know, there's no belief in science. There either is or there isn't. And so um, the science shows, you know, that climate's changing. And th so one thing is that, is that you also hear is that, that climate changes naturally, right? Yeah, okay, because, look, not mean to cut you off, because they were saying, during the, I guess, the Paleolithic era, there was more carbon in the air yeah. than there is now? Yeah. Okay, so explain, go, go on. Yeah, point. and it was crazy hot, and you wouldn't want to live there, and you'd be stomped on by a dinosaur. <laughs> so, like, yeah, so the climate has absolutely changed, uh, you know, naturally throughout the course of the, the, the birth of the Earth. The temperature goes up, temperature goes down, we get a little closer to the sun, we get a little further away, the solar cycles, and there's these natural bounds, and we've been tracking that. And we have we, we can track it for you know for super long amounts of time. Now what's happened is that in recent times we've gone outside those natural bounds, outside those natural fluctuations, and that is the human fingerprint. Okay, so so I run into a friend or someone. What's the best way to explain to someone in simple terms, you know, that climate change is real? Because you got you got to realize most people aren't necessarily sitting down listening to. You know, science guys like yourself, you know, we are there watching TV and you can have a group of people who say, well, hey, it's a hoax created by the Chinese. Yeah. yeah. So so how do you how do you explain to people in very simple terms that climate is real? Yeah. Um, well, first I'm first off, I point them to this video <laughs> and be like, check out this guy, John video. This will explain it all to you. And then you'll be you know, you'll know what's up. Um, but again, it, it uh, 
um, it really depends on who the person is, right? There's no universal silver bullet that like, oh, if I say this right thing, just like suddenly everyone will get it, right? Um, you have to, you know, you really have to empathize and understand where people are coming from. What are their values? What do they know? Uh, what is their experience? Where can you find those connections? And it takes uh, more than just the perfect words or the right facts or the right science. It really takes an empathetic understanding uh -huh. of individuals and their differences and their values um, to connect to them. And so, um, it, you know, it depends. And, you know, you also have to find out where they're getting their information from, right? You get a lot of denier talking points. And, um, you know, there's, there's ways to counter that. You, there's people who are just interested in the facts and the science. And there's people who don't read that, right? They don't hear it. You, you could tell them, yeah, the temperature's gotten warmer since, like, last, you know, year or 10 years or whatever. It's, that's, it's too jargony or too sciencey or too data. But if you tell them a story, you know, it might be different. You would be like, do you remember when you and your grandpa used to go, you know, fishing, <laughs> right? You know, back in the day, and there was all this fish, and the river was that high, uh -huh. and now it's not, right? Where are the fish? Where is the river? And then, like, suddenly, a way to um, communicate through just a story gets them to draw that link to, wait a second, you know, what something is happening. Okay, so the Amazon was recently on fire. And Still kind of is. Okay, and they call that the Earth's lungs. Yeah. Is, is that an accurate representation? Um, oh, that's over. That's, that's, that's over I love to use that. Um, some of my science colleagues say it's, it should be the heartbeat, not the lungs. <laughs> okay. I'm like, it's the lungs. <laughs> like, it's like it like breathes in the CO2 we breathe out, breathes out the oxygen we breathe in. So it's a big debate just which body part it is. But the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. but you know, some like other scientists are like, no, it's like the heartbeat. It's like thumping. Uh -huh. So I don't know. Um, I, I, I still call it the lungs of the planet, um, even though a lot of my science colleagues are like, you know, it's more like the heartbeat of the, the planet. But yeah, it totally breathes in the CO2 we breathe out and breathes out the oxygen we breathe in. And it, and it is shrinking. Like, they are cutting down a lot of trees. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you, you could see this with your satellites, Easy. right? And, and, like, at what rate is it disappearing? Super duper duper fast. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fast. And, you know, it depends on, like, geopolitical situations and who's in charge in Brazil or the Congo. But, but how do you go to, what's his name, Bolsonaro? Or what's his, yeah. How do you tell him, hey, <coughs> stop? You would need a, you, only the U.S. or some big country like the U.S. or the China could kind of demand that, right? And even still, that's an independent country. So how do you solve climate when you have so many different players who have so many different views? Because he's not a believer in climate science. As a matter of fact, I don't know that he doesn't believe, but there's a lot of money involved in what he's doing exactly. by, by spreading these farms exactly. out because they produce so much beef, right? Sure, sure. So, yeah. so I mean, like, how, how do you even deal with a country like that? I mean, ultimately, it's not about Brazil, but it's about every country, right? In every country, how do you deal with uh, their decisions, especially if it hurts the environment or hurts the planet? Um, ultimately, it's, it's about money and politics, right? There's a lot of money in politics everywhere whether it's America or China or Brazil or wherever, there's a lot of money in politics. And so then where's the money coming from, right? Follow the money. Uh, and if the money's coming from an interest, a powerful interest against, you know, forests or against climate change, then that's where the, that's how the politics roll. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's crazy when I, when I look at Brazil. So if they would have stopped, if they would have stopped all this burning, the slash and burn thing that they have going on down there, the forest would have re eventually return, right? 
Yeah, that's a tough question, right? <laughs> I mean, you're like, right, right, well, you, right? You, you, say, <laughs> say yes, right? Um, you just side with that one. You're like, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. The, that the, don't sound good, you know? Yeah, I can't, I can't be too positive about that answer because, um, I mean, positive as in not sure, but as in, like, happy. Um, so you would think, all right, you chop down a tree in, you know, backyard, yeah, the seeds will drop and it'll grow up again. In the Amazon, um, you know, the lungs of our planet, a lot of the sus- uh, su- sustenance of the Amazon rainforest is through recycling of water, right? Where's the water come from? It first comes off the Atlantic, right, uh-huh. and through storms. But it's n- those storms don't make it all the way into the Amazon. That's a big place, right? So th- it'll rain down, and then the trees will store that water, evaporated out of those leaves like we uh-huh. talked about before create new clouds mm-hmm. new rain and sustain it right so it sustains itself through this recycling of water rain comes down it stores it puts it back up you chop down the tree uh-huh. or the trees there's nothing to retain that water anymore when it rains the water doesn't stay in the system it just ro- runs off into the rivers back to the ocean and so you can't sustain yourself as as an amazon rainforest if you're chopping your 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 water retention systems down and recycling systems down so it's not clear that um by chopping that the amazon rainforest can fully recover you might reach this tipping point in which you just don't have that water anymore wow okay that that (laughs) who wants a drink go to tipsy bartender and we'll uh you know what one of the things with this whole with this whole climate science right now is a, a, a lot of uh, I've seen on the news re- recently is that as these glaciers melt, they're releasing viruses that have been trapped there for thousands, I guess, thousands of years, millions of years. Yeah, sure. So that's fun, right? What, what kind of, what, okay, would these be viruses that our ancestors <laughs> are already immune to that were, were trapped, or these are viruses that humans have? no ability to deal with yeah we don't know um you know we (laughs) we we hear about like oh yeah the the ice is thawed and we found this you know unfrozen caveman and how cool is that and Uh there's a spear or whatever but guess what it's not just the caveman there's the caveman diseases right (laughs) um and so we kind of forget about that unlocking you know it's not it's cool at first and then you're like ooh, uh go freeze yourself again (laughs) <laughs> back in the freezer right uh so um yeah we don't know i mean there's like these ancient viruses the giant viruses that have been trapped for millennia that are now becoming exposed uh that we haven't you know it's opening pandora's box right uh-huh. you know let's you know open uh, waking that sleeping dragon what's uh-huh. under there uh-huh. and like it could be all hell that breaks out or it could be like whatever <laughs> okay Wow, I can have a new disease. Well, it's an old disease. Yeah, okay. new disease, old disease, right? Yeah. <laughs> no one ever had it. Before. Well, some people might have had it, but a bit <laughs> way back. Okay. So, if you could put an estimate on this, okay, because when people talk climate science, everyone goes, okay, I believe you. How long do we have? Like, how long do we have at our current rate before we hit this tipping point where we're all royally screwed? Yeah. Um, great question. Um, and there are tipping points for all sorts of systems. We talked about the Amazon rainforest tipping point. At what mm-hmm. point do you top the forest back that it can't sustain itself? There are tipping points that are very clear to see, you know, with the sea level rising. If you're an island nation, 
and your the sea level rises, you lose your nation. And those have already happened. Uh, entire nations are moving off. In the South Pacific, that's happening. Yeah, off their islands. So those tipping points are already occurring before our eyes. So there's lots of tipping points, some occurring faster, some occurring slower. Um, but we are already seeing them right now. And so in terms of how much time we have, we talked about agriculture earlier, mm-hmm. water in California versus water in, say, the Middle East or, you know, somewhere where there's, um, you know, fewer uh, protections and buffers and financial uh, safety nets. Uh, those tipping points will occur faster than they will in, in other areas. So, it, you know, it depends on, on the situation and, and the area. Okay, you're, you're a scientist, all right, just w- moving away from <clears throat> you, you're, you're a scientist. And now science is... I, 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 let me use the word sexy. Like, before, if I say... <laughs> before, if go I... Go on, <laughs> go on. Before, if you said, hey, listen, I want to talk to a scientist, you know, people would be like, ah, oh, no, that's boring. But science, science is like the in thing now. Why do you think that is? You think that have to do with, like, the Elon Musk types coming out? And what, what do you, have what you do seen you? him dance? That's not sexy. <laughs> Uh, I love Elon, like, you know, but like, you know, like, let's keep the headphones down. A little. Um, no, I, you know, I don't know. It's, um, you know, it's people like you, right? It's got, it's, you know, it's people like you who are reaching out to scientists and, and, and others. And, um, and, you know, it's just, I, I don't, I don't know why science is becoming more ubiquitous and sexy. Um, but you'd agree with that, right? That you, that more people appear to be interested in what you guys have to say now as opposed to before? I don't I don't know. I think science has been sexy for a while from like, you know, Galileo to... You're a scientist though, okay? Yeah, right. (laughs) Yes, you can find Galileo sexy, but I'm going to be Galahoo. Yeah, but at the time, (laughs) at the time, right? People look to them for like, I mean, that was major like groundbreaking, like society changing when Uh we figured out that we revolve around the sun and the Uh sun doesn't revolve around us. Like science has always been part, a huge part of society. And, um... You know, I think right now what is different in our age and very marked is, you know, how a lot of your viewers and listeners are listening to this is technology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in information and data. And so we are in the big data, the big information age, information at the tip of a finger. And information, like good information, typically comes from science, right? So you've got a lot more access to science. And so it, be, it provides interesting, uh, you know, fodder for shows like this. It provides interesting ins- inspiration for artists for movie makers. And so you now have science uh, at being connected to a lot more people because of the a- internet age that we live in. What What do you think the world would look like if we were all scientists? Maybe not at your level, but you understand. I would appreciate Well, that is science. my world, right, at JPL. Like, we're all, like, well, I mean, most, a lot of engineers and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, we're all pretty nerdy and introverted, and we won't look at each other, you know. Like, we play Dungeons and Dragons in the cafeteria. You know, it's kind of not, you know, I don't know. Ultimately, Scott, like ultimately, we are all scientists. Uh-huh. We actually all, we are born scientists. We are curious about the world. We are curious to dig up in the sand. We are curious what happens if we, you know, poke that bug, and we get the the science beat out of us, right, by the system, but it's still in there. And and I think one of my main goals is to bring the scientist out of everybody, and and ask that what if if everyone was a scientist or brought that scientist out of them. I think we would have a world where we didn't just necessarily take information fed into us and uh-huh. believe it. We would question it. We look for alternative hypotheses. We look for evidence, and uh, and and it, you know, science 
if everyone was a scientist, we'd have you know a world that was that could progress and advance technologically. You think there'd be less wars? I don't know. Scientists are pretty mean to each other too. So like we're we're you would still have a bunch of wars with a bunch of scientists running. Uh, scientists are punks too, you know. Like <laughs> you know, so I think that there's scientists. There's like you know, scientists make bad decisions too, right? You no, know, I, I I agree with that, but I, I just think life. that you guys. I I was looking up to y'all, going, wow, they could actually get along. If scientists run the world, we'd all be at peace, you know, living in the future. Yeah, I, yeah, um, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I mean we've had we have scientist leaders, uh, world leaders like uh, Merkel uh, in Germany. She's a scientist, physicist. Oh, I didn't know that. She's yeah. a physicist. Yeah. Okay. And um, there's I think a few other you know major leaders, so we can look to those countries. And I, see. Didn't, I didn't know she was a physicist. That's, yeah. That's that's really cool. Um, so I think so. How how would you get a how would you get a kid involved in science? Though? I don't kid. have any kids yet, yeah. but one day you know I might be I can have a little one. How would, you, how, would, how would you encourage a kid to get involved in science? I mean, like I said, we're all born scientists, and, and kids are the natural scientists. Yeah, natural, right like Fortnite, but... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, if you can get off that, right? Uh, they're out there experimenting, tinkering. What happens if I tip this ball? You know, what happens if I tip that fancy vase that my dad, Sky, bought, you know, over? You know, how loud will he react? Let me record the decibel levels, you know? Uh, you know, kind of thing. So... Um, you know, scientists are, you know, kids are scientists, and uh, and I think that the we want to keep encouraging that. We want to give uh-huh. them things to play with, data. Um, you know, we're, we're getting kids to code at early ages so they can access bigger data sets. We're getting them to program robots. Um, and so I think that what's important is to keep encouraging that in our school system because uh, it'll benefit society, it'll benefit America, it'll benefit the world. Um, but, and make sure that, you know, we don't beat it out of them through rote memorization. You got to oh. memorize all the organic chemistry elements and you got to just memorize all the body parts and you got to memorize it. You know, it's all about understanding how the system works and keeping that alive. You guys also work with SpaceX, right? Because they, they sure. you guys use their rockets now. Yeah, absolutely. That's nice. How's that, how's that been working out? Yeah, great. SpaceX is awesome. I mean, you know, Elon Musk dancing aside, they've been awesome. <laughs> Um, they, uh, um, you know, before uh, SpaceX came on the scene, we were launching off of Russian Cold War nuclear rockets that like had been decommissioned, right? And why? So, why does? Why didn't you have your own? Well, they were cheaper because Russia built a heck load of them, and like they stopped using them. So okay. Um, but you know, so then there was an interest in investing in American, you know, technology, and SpaceX came along and and really stepped up to the plate. And there's other um, uh, companies that do that as well. So, um, Co- but cost-wise, was SpaceX cheaper than than working with the Russians? SpaceX was not or- or initially cheaper than wor- working with the Russians, but now they are, and they've really reduced costs, uh, especially because they can reland their rockets. It used to be you just launch a, a rocket and like dump it out on the, into the ocean. Mm-hmm. Now you launch it, and it like it's almost like watching it in reverse. It goes and lands back down. Yeah, I saw the simultaneous yeah. landing that blew my mind. Yeah. yeah, and it's not because it's cool; it's because it saves a you know boatload of money, um, so to speak. Uh, so um, yeah, SpaceX is doing well uh, on this mission EcoStress that uh, we launched to the space station. We went up on a SpaceX rocket, and the mission didn't have to pay for the launch. Uh, they were already contracted to resupply the space station with food and other experiments. So we just kind of you know hitched a ride outside of Elon's uh, you know office. Um, and, and got a free ride to space, so to speak. We were discussing this earlier. Okay, Elon Musk runs SpaceX, Tesla. 
I guess, Hyperloop, um, Neuralink, okay, all these companies that are doing these really, really big things. There's no way this dude could be running all these companies and really be hands-on. So that means that he has to find someone competent, and that guy's the one really calling the shots, right? Uh, I mean, or he doesn't sleep, and that's why he dances badly. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he. Well, it's like it's like any business. You know, there's a lot of really powerful business people that have a lot of businesses, and are they really, uh, you know, involved in all their businesses? But he do, he does it in cereal a little bit too, right? You know, he really built up. Um, you know Tesla at first, and, and then you know once he kind of got that moving into space, SpaceX, and he says you know launching rockets is actually easier than producing cars. But um, you know so you know the the guy's a our modern day Thomas Edison. You know he's he's a mover and shaker, and um, I'm really you know proud to kind of be able to connect to him uh, now. And um, you know when we look back in the history books, he'll be right there, and that's that's cool, right? That is that is cool. Josh, listen, man, thank you for sitting down with me and going over climate, and I can go out there and convince everyone, hey, this climate change thing is real. You need to start hitting people. People respond to that. Like, yeah. Seriously. You, know, like, you don't believe in climate change? Boof! Yeah. You believe now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe. Yeah. You know? works, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you have to force yeah, people to do stuff, okay? You gotta do that, yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, get, get, a, get a tipsy bartender drink, and let's, let's have some drinks and talk, talk it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think you can still boil land us hitting them at some point. Oh, yeah, we can. We can <laughs> bottom line, get the people. Hey, thank yeah. you very much, yeah. man, okay? Yeah. Thanks. Anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Adios, mi gente. Nos vemos. See you next time. <laughs>